this morning. Thank you so much for being here. I also want to say hello to all of you who are watching online on television. For those of you who are in the room, would you please give our online and television audience a big hand? I would like to make a statement as we begin uh, and have a prayer over the events of this past week. The people of Montgomery and people all around this great nation understand what it means to fight for civil rights. Much of this fight is simply to see. It is to see that all people are people who are created in the image of God. It is to see that all people, whether they believe in God or not, they are people of dignity and sacred worth. While it is our conviction that we will respect every, human's being, every human being's right to form their own convictions, it is also our conviction that no human being should be allowed to violate and therefore deny the image-bearing dignity and sacred worth of the unborn. While we as the Church of Jesus Christ are committed to walking with any and every person through the difficult decisions and pains of life, every single one, today we do rejoice at the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Amen. So would you pray with me? Father, we come in this moment and we do rejoice for so many things, and yet at the same time, we grieve. Lord, we grieve for lives that have been lost. We grieve for those who are grieving over their decisions, decisions that have been made. Lord, we pray for your grace on every single one of us. Lord, we know that we live in a fallen world, as a broken world, as a world where we are hurting people, and as hurting people, many times we hurt others. And so, Lord, I pray for your grace to cover each and every person here, each and every person that's under the sound of my voice, watching online, on television, whenever they watch it. That even though there are a lot of opinions about what's going on in our country right now, I pray that we would look to your word for our guidance, and we would see the gift of life, and that we truly are knit together by you in our mother's womb. And for that, we say thank you, because you are our very life. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, turn our attention to your word, and Lord, we ask that you would speak and give us ears to hear this morning. My words are so feeble, so it takes your spirit to help us see you. So Lord, we pray that that would happen. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name, and everybody said, amen. amen. If you have a Bible, please go to Leviticus chapter one. We're gonna do a lot of flipping around a little bit. Some text will appear on the screen and some will not. We're in a series entitled God's House where we are, uh, we've spent the first four weeks in Haggai looking at uh, the rebuilding of the temple in 520 BC. We've gone back to the book of Leviticus uh, to see where all of this began. Last week we talked about the question, why Leviticus? And made a case for why uh, Leviticus exists, and uh, in, especially in relationship to Exodus 32 and the golden calf experience that Israel had. And so today, I want us to I want to start by looking at Leviticus 1:1, and then the last verse of Leviticus. You can go ahead and turn over there, which is Leviticus 27:34. I just want to read these real quick so that you see the context of Leviticus. Leviticus 1:1 starts and says, "The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying." 
And then he goes into verse 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And so this is a very personal thing. We are bringing offerings to the Lord from our livestock in that sense. It is costly to the person. And we see here in verse 1 that the Lord is speaking to Moses his commandments. And then we see at the very end of the book, Leviticus 27, verse 34, these are the commands that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So what we see throughout the book of Leviticus are the commands that the Lord has spoken to Moses, and those commands center on and around how people can approach a holy God in worship how people can approach a holy God in worship. Even whenever I say that phrase, so many times that is foreign to us. But because the, in our society today, we have a very individualistic society, but we have a society that says, God in worship in this way or that way, or this is how I like to express myself to God in worship, or this is an expression of worship that I prefer in my life. And so many times that's just woven into our language. We say things like, this is what speaks to me. This is what moves me, whether it be emotionally or mentally or whatever. And we have to be very careful with statements like that. The, the whole book of Leviticus is written in a context to a people, but it's about how they are to approach God and worship God. How they are to go about that. And again, so many times we like worship on our terms. And if we're not careful... We're not careful, we will end up worshiping worship instead of worshiping God. Or worshiping a form of worship instead of worshiping God. And so many times what we see throughout scripture is that when we come to that place where we are worshiping worship, we won't worship on our terms, it always turns into idolatry. We, we worship a form of worship or something other than God. And so Leviticus is all about how do people approach this holy God in worship. Now you may be sitting there thinking, now Chris, you know, this is this old sacrificial system, this is, you know, you know they're killing animals and all that stuff, you know, that really does not apply to us. Oh, but it does. It really does. It's just fulfilled in a different way. And that's what I wanna talk about this morning. Let's start by setting our context. We are in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, five books of Moses, and it's Exodus. Uh, I mean, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you notice, there is Genesis and Deuteronomy on one end. You come in a layer, there's Exodus and Numbers, and then right at the center of the Pentateuch is Leviticus. Now, Leviticus itself has a structure to it, and once you understand this structure, it makes it a whole lot easier, I think, to understand. There are seven movements throughout the book of Leviticus. Have you ever picked up Leviticus and just started reading, and you're like, I have no idea where this is going? I mean, we all have, right? It's like if counting sheep doesn't work, we turn to Leviticus, we start reading, and next thing you know, we're out, right? Well, there's a structure to the book of Leviticus that we need to understand, a chiastic structure. Let me show you the seven movements. The seven movements of Leviticus start in chapters 1 through 7 with the ritual sacrifices, ritual sacrifices. The second movement is about the ordination of priests, and that's in chapters 8 through 10. The third movement is about laws around ritual purity, I mean purity laws in which you would go up into worship. That's in chapters 11 through 15. In uh, the, the middle movement, movement four, is the Day of Atonement. That's chapters 16 and 17. The fifth movement are laws about moral purity, how we live morally in the world, 18 through 20. 
And then movement six is about the qualifications of the priest, chapters 21 through 22. And then the last movement is around the ritual calendar, chapters 23 through 27. Now, here's how I want you to see this. The book starts with ritual sacrifices, ritual sacrifices, chapters one through seven. The book ends with the ritual calendar, chapters 23 through 27. Then you come in a layer. In chapters eight through 10, it talks about the ordination of the priest. In chapters 21 and 22, it talks about the qualifications of a priest. Then you come in a layer. In chapters 11 through 15, there are laws about ritual purity. And then in chapters 18 and 20, there are laws about moral purity. Then you come to the center. The very center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. That day when the sins of the people would be forgiven for one year. Which means if Leviticus is at the center of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the center of the Torah, the law, what is at the center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. That is not by accident. And this is a chiastic structure that the book has. You and I were Western thinkers, so we think in terms of beginning, middle, end, right? Whenever we read a book, that's how there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's a narrative, and then there's an ending to the book. Even the Bible is not written that way. It begins in a garden and it ends in the garden. This is a very Eastern book, not a Western book. We're Western thinkers. And we understand this. Some of the most powerful statements that have been made throughout history have been made with a chiastic structure. JFK, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You hear the structure there. You see it. And so in, in many other ways, we see this all throughout Scripture, and it helps us understand it. It helps us understand the book of Leviticus as a whole. There are rituals. There are priests, there are laws, and then there is atonement at the very center. Now, I want us to look at that first section, the ritual sacrifices. And I want to understand the ritual sacrifices this way. There are five of them, and they're very clear. They're, very, they're for specific reasons. But, but here's what we need to remember to understand the ritual sacrifices. There are two fundamental um, sayings, four words, two sayings that we teach our children. They're very important. Those two fundamental sayings, four words, two sayings are thank you and I'm sorry, right? You can be the biggest pagan on the planet and you still want your kids to be able to say thank you and I'm sorry, right? There's something inherent in us as human beings about these two things. When we teach our kids, when someone gives them something, we say, what do you say to them? And when they look at you with that blank look, you go, thank you, right? And then if there's an issue with a brother or sister or friend or something, we go, you go tell them that you are sorry, right? And so these two, thank you and sorry, we need to understand those two phrases to understand the five offerings in chapters one through seven, because two of them are thank you offerings and two of them are I'm sorry offerings. When it comes to understanding sacrifices, also remember, the sacrifices that we're reading about here are very different than the other cultures that are around Israel at this time. There's three main differences that I'll point out. Number one, these sacrifices express a closeness to God, whereas the other cultures lived with distance from God and felt like that through the sacrifices they would get even closer to God. But these sacrifices are actually expressing a closeness that's already there because God's presence is with them. God's presence is already with them. Number two, these sacrifices are about transformation, transformation through the experience of giving the sacrifice. They're not about appeasing God in that sense. And then number three, these sacrifices are communal. 
They're not individualistic. They are not done alone. They're done with a priest and they're done in public with other people. This is a community thing, not just a private religious thing that's going on. And we need to understand that as we go in to look at these five. Let's start with the first one. The first one is burnt offerings, burnt offerings. We see it in chapter one. We also see it mentioned in chapter six, verses eight through 13. This is the first of the I'm sorry offerings. We pick it up in Leviticus chapter one, starting in verse three. It says, if... If his offering, someone who is coming, is a burnt offering, there it is identified, from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Verse 5, then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons and the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Verse 6, then he shall flay the burnt offerings and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Down in verse 9, it says, this is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, the thing about the burnt offering is this is the most costly offering is when someone has sinned, they are very much aware of their sin. It was especially intentional sin. And in this burnt offering, the entire animal is burned up. None is consumed by any of the priest or the person offering, as we'll see here in just a few minutes with another sacrifice. But the whole animal is burnt up. And the point of this offering, I'll say is threefold. Number one, the purpose, first purpose, is to confess your sin. The animal is dying a substitutionary death in your place. That's why you place your hands on it, transferring, in, transferring your sins onto the animal, and the animal is dying a substitutionary death in your place. Number two, so it's not only a confession of sin, number two, it is a commitment to God, a recommitment to God. In this moment, the person is renewing their covenant back to God, saying, I have sinned, broken your law, I'm giving the sacrifice, and therefore realigning my life back with you in this costly, costly way. And then number three, there is a complete surrender to God. It takes humility and humbleness to walk before all these people to offer a sacrifice that is for your sins. And in that moment, you offer that before the people and they know that you have sinned. And God knows that you have sinned. But in that moment, you're saying, God, I completely surrender myself to you, not just in a private way, but publicly. Publicly surrendering myself to you because you are the only one that can actually deal with this sin problem that I have. Again, notice that it is a male without blemish is dying in place of the person, and the person is to make the sacrifice. And we say, man, that just sounds horrible. Remember what God is doing. God is imprinting on the minds and the hearts of the people that sin is costly. There are expensive consequences to sin in life. And taking some, uh, an animal from your herd or your flock and going and sacrificing that is costly, even simply financially, and it's also messy. And in so doing, God is revealing just how messy sin is and costly sin is in our life. And again, remember, this is not something that's just done in a back room somewhere. This is not something that's done in a confessional booth. This is a very public, public and personal thing that the person is doing in offering this sacrifice that is completely burned. And in being completely burned, in that moment, what the person is saying is that I would rather gaze upon the Lord I'd rather commune with God in this moment and completely give this sacrifice to him instead of consuming the meat that is in front of me. 
That's the burnt offering. The second offering is the grain offering. This is the first thank you offering. We read it in Leviticus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And then the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, verse 2 says. And so a portion of this offering is burnt on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, verse 3. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offering. Verse 4 tells us that this is to be done with unleavened bread, and that unleavened bread is to have all put on it. Verse 6 tells us that they are to break this bread into pieces, again, pour all on it, because it is a grain offering unto the Lord. So to understand the grain offering, uh, its purpose is mainly this. It was a, a, an offering saying thank you to God, but you are thanking God for the first fruits most of the time. Meaning when the first fruits of your crops began to come in, uh, this is an agrarian society, when the first fruits of your crops would come in, they would immediately go, they would offer this offering to God and say, God, thank you so much because you are good, because you have provided for me. You have provided it's God who has given me the provision that I need. And this is also an act of devotion. Now notice that the grain is a pleasing aroma to God. It's used with unleavened bread, just like is used in the Lord's Supper, number one. And then also notice that it's broken into pieces. Again, just like the bread is broken in the Lord's Supper. And here you begin to see the foreshadowing that's coming. Also notice that oil is to be put on it. In other words, it is to be anointed in that sense. And if you think about that, it was Jesus who was anointed at Bethany as he was on the way to cross to be broken on our behalf. Again, you begin to see this throughout Leviticus. And then some is burnt and then some is given to the priest for them to eat. So the first offering is a burnt offering, the first I'm sorry offering. The second offering, the grain offering, is thanking God for his provision in their life. The third offering is called the peace offering. We see this in Leviticus 3, also in Leviticus 7. This is the second thank you offering. And we see in Leviticus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, if his offering, if someone who's bringing an offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, he is to offer an animal from his herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish to the Lord. They shall lay his hands on his head in the offering uh, of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent. And Aaron's sons, the priest, will throw the blood against the side of the altar and from the sacrifice of the peace offering, it is a food offering to the Lord. Again, verse 5 says that this is a pleasing aroma to God. Now, this is the second thank you offering. And the purpose of this one is you're thanking God for peace. Now, they're not going to God making a sacrifice necessarily so that they could get peace or have peace or receive peace about something that's going on in their life. Again, they're not appeasing God. This is a thank you offering. It's voluntary. They are thanking God because he has brought some kind of specific blessing of shalom, specific blessing of peace, of well-being into their life. They're acknowledging that there was an issue here, there was a problem here, there was pain here in my life, and now God has provided his shalom, his well-being, his peace. And instead of me taking the credit for that, oh no, I'm going to pause and say thank you, God 
for what you have done. Because ultimately, any peace that I have in my life, it is because you have brought it. And this sacrifice is a sign, not just of trust that they have in the moment, it is a sign of future trust, that God, you brought peace in my life in this moment, and I believe that you will do it again. This offering, when it is offered, you notice that it is an animal, it is divided between the person offering it and the priest, and both get to eat it and celebrate in this fellowship meal together. The fourth offering is called the sin offering. We see it in Leviticus 4, also in 5 and 6. This is the second I'm sorry offering. And this one address, addresses several different people, just so that no one is left out, okay? So in Leviticus chapter 4, we see the Lord said to Moses, speak uh, to the people of Israel saying, if anyone commits a sin unintentionally, that's a key word, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done, and does any one of them, verse 3, if it is the uh, anointed priest who sins, so now he's zeroing in, zeroing in on the priest, thus bringing guilt on the whole people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has uh, committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord as a sin offering. Down in verse 13, it says, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they, do, uh, and, and they do any one of the things that the Lord has commanded them that not, uh, ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd as a sin offering. Then in verse 22, he says, when a leader sins, so it's when a priest sins, when the whole congregation sins together. Now, if a leader sins, doing so unintentionally, and then they realize their guilt, verse 23, they are to bring a sin offering of a goat as well. And then in verse 27, it says, if any one of the common people sin unintentionally, again, they are to do likewise. So notice, he's, he's just calling out everybody here, right? It's the priest, it's the whole congregation as a whole, it's the, any leaders within the congregation or any of the people, meaning this applies to everyone. This is a mandatory offering, a mandatory offering for sin. Now, what does that mean? Notice he keeps using this word unintentionally. It means this sin offering is for when we come to realize that I have been wrong. It's not something that people like to admit these days, right? But it's when we come to that place, we say, you know, I may have held a belief or an action or whatever it is, even a thought pattern in my life, but I realize I'm wrong. And instead of saying to God, God, but I didn't mean to, which is so many times what we like to do with sin, but I didn't know, I didn't mean to. What the sin offering does is it brings us to that place where we say, God, yes, I didn't mean to, but, but I was still wrong and I have sinned. And so what this offering does is, yes, it is a coming to a realization that I've done wrong, but it's also confessing an unintentional sin and receiving cleansing from that defilement. Because even though it was unintentional, I still sinned. It still taints me and others. And here they receive cleansing. This is an honest acknowledgement before the Lord when you realize, you know, I've been wrong. The fifth offering is the guilt offering. We see it in Leviticus 5, 6, and 7. It's mentioned. And this is the last I'm sorry offering. The last I'm sorry offering. In Leviticus chapter 5, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith, 
any with another person, and sins unintentionally in any of the holy, th- holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish from the flock, valued at the silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. Verse 16, he shall offer also, or should also make recompense for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And then it goes on and you can read there. You see, the burnt offering is about acknowledging our rebellion against God. And the offering, the animal, dies substitutionarily in our place, saying, I'm sorry. The grain offering is saying, thank you, God, for the provision of my life. The peace offering is saying, thank you, God, for a specific blessing that you have brought into my life. The sin offering we offer whenever we realize that we have sinned unintentionally against God. The guilt offering is for when we realize we have sinned unintentionally against others. The purpose is where we come to realize, you know, I have been wrong, and I have wronged you, brother or sister in Christ. I have wronged you. And instead of saying that famous phrase that we like to say to each other, you know, well, just get over it. I didn't mean to. Right? Oh, we say it all the time. And then we try to inadvertently make ourselves the victim because someone called us out on it. Oh, dear. Instead of doing that, we say, no, yeah, I may not have meant to. I was still wrong, and I have wronged you. And the calling of the guilt offering is to make that right. There is restitution that takes place, and the priest mediates that. Now, you may be sitting there saying, okay, Chris, that's really great information. One offering is for our sins, substitutionary death in our place. One offering says, thank you, God, for your provision in my life. One says, thank you, God, for a specific blessing of shalom or peace in my life. One says, God, I am sorry, I've sinned against you. And one says, God, I am sorry, I've sinned against my brother or sister. What does that mean to me? What it means to us is that Jesus is the one who fulfills all five offerings. We see it in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and also 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. If you have a Bible, go to 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2. John is writing to the church scattered throughout Ephesus, and he says this, My little children, verse 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is very important. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John would come back to this theme in the very in just two chapters over. First John chapter four, verse nine. Flip a page. First John four nine says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is so important. What he is communicating there, that Jesus is the true atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as the Hebrew writer says it, it is once and for all. Meaning all of these offerings that we see take place in Leviticus 1 through 7 and how they play out, every one of them are fulfilled in Christ. He is the propitiation for us. And so, if you like to take notes, let me give you a few points. Everything I've said has got me to point number one. Point number one is that Jesus 
surrendered himself on our behalf. Another way of saying that is that Jesus is our true burnt offering. He is the substitutionary death that has died in our place, the true burnt offering, completely giving himself over, completely allowing himself to be consumed to carry our sin to die on the cross in our place. And if we're going to understand the gospel, we have to understand the fact that Jesus died in our place as a substitutionary death. And I would say to remove that from the gospel, you will not have a gospel at all. Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we could be set free. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. He took on our sin and he gave us his life. He died in our place. He is our ultimate burnt offering. Number two is that Jesus is our ultimate provision, meaning he is the true grain offering for us, the one who provides. If you go to Ephesians chapter five, for example, in Ephesians chapter five, verse two, it says that Jesus... Yes, I love how it breaks it out here that Jesus not only died for us as the sacrifice, it says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What was that giving up? What does that mean? Ephesians 5, 2. He gave himself up means two things. He is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Over and over you see this language with these sacrifices that they're a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Jesus was the pleasing aroma to God. He sacrificed himself, and that pleasing aroma was this language of fellowship, of bringing two things together, of joining two parties together. And we see that he provides everything that we need in our life, in both this life and the next, once and for all, are found in him. This leads into the rest of them. Point number three is that Jesus is our ultimate peace. He is our ultimate peace. He is the true peace offering for us. He is bringing peace. He is being peace for us. That's why, again, if we go back over to Ephesians chapter 2, we see this very important language. In Ephesians 2, verse 13 and 14, it says, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ through his sacrifice. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. They're pointing back to the peace offering, the peace that we now have with God and the peace that he brings into our life. Every, uh, every area of our life in which peace rests and resides, it's because Christ brings it there. And I want to point this out, and it's simply this, is that manufactured peace, which we try to do, we try to find peace in so many other places, manufactured peace is always fractured peace every time. But in Christ, peace is complete. So he is our ultimate peace, number four, is that Jesus is our ultimate forgiveness, meaning he is our true sin offering, our true sin offering. He's the one place where our sins can be dealt with once and for all. That's why 1 John 1, 7, verses just before 1 John 2, where it says he is our propitiation, 1 John 1, 7 tells us that it's through the blood of Jesus, God's son, that he cleanses us from all sin. And then in verse 9, that famous verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the language that is used about Christ. And nobody else in the world and throughout history has language like that been used about. Because he's the only place where we can find true forgiveness. He is our true sin offering. Number five is that Jesus is our ultimate restitution. 
He's our ultimate restitution. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 and 17, you'll see this Jesus who broke down the dividing wall of hostility that we have with other human beings. He is truly the one who can restore all of our relationships. And what we see from Leviticus is that God is beginning to preach the gospel to the entire world and is pointing toward his son and how his son is going to fulfill all of these things that we see. And there are types and shadows and foreshadowing that takes place, but it all ultimately points to him. Because Jesus is the true substitute. He is the one who is the true aroma to God. He is the true unleavened bread. Leaven represented sin. He is the sinless one that's broken for us in our place. He is the one that is truly anointed with the oil of heaven. He is the one who brings peace into our life and restores our relationship with both God and other people. He is truly the Lamb of God. And our job is to take the words of John the Baptist serious. When Jesus showed up on the scene, John the Baptist was out baptizing people in the wilderness. And when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist looks at him and he points and he tells everybody who's standing there, behold, to see, behold, look upon, understand who this is. Behold the Lamb of God who what? takes away the sin of the world. And that is our job in that one moment right there. John the Baptist, great theologian, is summarizing Leviticus 1 through 7. Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 7. Because Jesus is truly the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Our challenge is to make sure that we behold him as such. So may we see him for who he really is. And may we see him for all of who he is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the years upon years of sacrifices that were given that has burned on our minds and been a testimony to the generations that there is truly only one sacrifice that was to come. And Lord, we are thankful that that sacrifice has now come. That your son and our savior would lay down his life to die into our place. And Lord, it, so many times we wish it were not so. We wish that the wages of sin was not death, but they are the natural consequences of our rebellion. That in our sin, we set in course pain and hurt into other people's lives, into our lives, and it affects us all. And there's no way that we can bring it back together without your son stepping into human history and making it right for us. And this morning, we say thank you for that. And God, I pray for anyone who has never made their, their life right with you and with your son through the power of your spirit. God, I pray that this would not just be a great lesson where we're learning some history and learning some Bible. May we too be transformed because we believe in sacrifice. But Lord, that sacrifice has been made on our behalf. And for that, we say thank you. moment today if that's someone here in the room or watching online that says you know I'm seeing Jesus for the first time really 
through these pictures of these ways of sacrifice, I'm seeing what he did for me, and I've never actually received that gift. I've never received him as my Savior and Lord. You can do that right now through a prayer or something like this. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry, and thank you. I'm sorry for my sin and my wrong and how I have not loved you with my whole heart. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. Thank you that you gave Jesus your son to die on a cross in my place and to shed his blood so that I could be forgiven of all my sin and all my guilt could be taken away and that you raised him up to life on the third day so that I could have a new life with you now and eternal life with you forever. So Jesus, I receive you. I receive the offering you made on my behalf. I receive the life that you give me now. I receive your Holy Spirit that gives me power to follow you all the days of my life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If that's you today, I'd love to talk with you after the service about next steps in your faith. If you're watching online or by television, I encourage you to text the number that you see there and our team would love to respond to you. Why don't we stand together and receive a blessing as we go out? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he sense that his face is turned towards you because the blood of Jesus has taken away all sin and shame and guilt. So there's nothing between you and the light of his face, the fullness of his love, so that as you go from this place, you can offer yourself as a living sacrifice to him in response to his mercy and grace and love towards you. In the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Go in peace.